Hi there and welcome to Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. Thanks for joining me. Soprano Cynthia Heyman with I Loves You Porgy from Porgy and Bess, one of the most famous arias in the modern operatic repertoire. Or is it? Here's a version that might cause people to beg to dither. I loves you porgy That was the musical theatre diva Audra MacDonald performing I Loves You Porgy from a recent Broadway adaptation of the Gershwin Brothers' seminal 1935 work. Like a growing number of musical works for the stage, Porgy and Bess inhabits an interesting grey area between the world of musical theatre and the world of opera. The work has been performed in both contexts, successfully with very different kinds of singers over the years. So where does a work like Porgy and Bess truly belong? On Broadway or at the Met? It's that middle ground where the worlds of opera and musical theatre meet and embrace, or just as often collide and flame out, that we're going to explore on tonight's edition of Voicebox. Joining me in the studio are two brilliant observers of these two art forms, Charlize Thier and Chad Jones. Hi, Charlize and Chad. Thanks for being here tonight. Hi. Hi, Chloe. Good to be here. Charlize and Chad are the authors of long-standing and highly respected performing arts blogs. With her opera blog, Opera Tatler, Charlize has been documenting and observing trends in the opera scene since 2001. Chad's Theatre Dogs blog has been doing the same for theatre and musical theatre since 2006. Let's start with Porgy and Bess, Charlize and Chad. Is this work really a musical or an opera at heart? You know, it is what it is, and labels are somewhat arbitrary, um, but they're helpful to to find a way into talking about the work, which is, you know, why we're here today. Um, you know, when in 1935, audiences didn't know what to make of it. George Gershwin was m- the composer behind all these very happy Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he'd won a Pulitzer for Of the Icing, but, you know, it was on the lighter side of the Pulitzer uh, candidates that year, I'm <laughs> guessing. Uh, but, but it's taken decades for audiences to sort of come to terms with what is Porgy and Bess. I mean, I think probably the racial aspect of it had something to do with it in 1935 that kept audiences um, at arm's length and, again, didn't know quite how to approach a work like that. Very serious, uh, uh, musically ambitious, um, and by a composer of Broadway music. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taken... Uh, decades for us to catch up with mm-hmm. what it is. And opera houses are the ones who sort of rescued the work. And then once it had become established as a modern classic, which, you know, it pretty much always was, it just took a while for people to acknowledge that it was, <laughs> the Broadway people swooped in. And, um, well, even before Broadway, this happened in the in London's West End, um, it was sort of repackaged. Mm-hmm. And opera, I think, is a word that scares or that, producers think scares audiences away so they've got to find a way to 
market it. So they turn it into a Broadway show. It's the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, which is the official title of the Broadway version. The bit that we just heard that with we Audrey just, heard. just now. And it was, that was done that way in London uh, a few years ago. And then I think Trevor Nunn directed that one. And then um, more recently on Broadway, they brought in the playwright Susan Laurie Parks to sort of repackage the libretto into a more Broadway-style book with more mm-hmm. dialogue and less recitative and uh, more um, beginnings and endings of songs like Broadway audiences are used to. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us anything about the operatic context for this work, Charlize? What, do, you, do you know which was the first uh, opera production of, of this work? I believe it was in the 70s um, in Houston. And, you know, I think... It had never been done as an opera before and um, was done there and was done at the Met nine years later. And now it's just considered an opera, mm-hmm. um, although it enjoys great popularity, unlike um, a lot of operatic works, which are more obscure. Do you know anything about how it was received by opera audiences in that first production? Were they shocked by it in the 70s to see it on the opera stage up there with, you know, Turandot and... I actually butterfly. don't think so because in, it was in Houston and um, they just hadn't had an opera house for that long. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they did La Boheme and that was a like premiere for that house. I mean, it hadn't been done there. So I don't think it was that shocking. Uh-huh. Yeah. So why should we care about being able to categorize this work and other musical stage works into these categories of opera musicals? I mean, why is that important? I would just answer that from an audience perspective, um, my own perspective, being an audience member. Mm-hmm. Um, opera intimidates me. Musical theater doesn't. I'm much more inclined <laughs> to uh, spend my money buying a musical theater ticket and less so for an opera that I don't know about or that, uh, you know, isn't one of the, you know, five greatest hit operas that uh, everybody has some working knowledge of. Um, so so for me, the distinction is um, a world that I'm comfortable in, musical theater, and a world that I'm not comfortable in, opera, even though there's bleeding back and forth uh-huh. uh, between the two. It just, it's an easy, easy classification. So it's a signal for ticket buyers to you. To what me, do, yeah. What do you think? I would that say that Chad is probably right, that it has to do with accessibility. Um, even though it could be the same music, it, um, going to a Broadway show seems less intimidating. I would argue that operas are very, very silly, and you have no reason to be scared of them. Um, most opera plots are quite absurd. And, you know. But they're in foreign languages. <laughs> We just heard Bryn Terfel and Cecilia Bartoli performing a famous duet from Mozart's The Magic Flute. So even though The Magic Flute still exists primarily today on the opera stage, one phenomenon we've seen happening quite a bit is operatic material directly influencing musicals. From Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein's Showboat to Andrew Lloyd Webber's Evita, musical theatre composers seem to have embraced the dramatic sweep of the great opera composers, especially Puccini. 
Charlize, you've observed a link between Showboat and Puccini. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I would say Puccini has influenced musical theatre in that there are musicals that are based on Puccini operas. Rent is pretty much the same story as La Boheme, and Miss Saigon is pretty much the same story as uh, Madame Butterfly. Um, So there's that. Showboat is from 1927, and Turned Out is from 1926. So um, I would say they're sort of from the same musical world, in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's listen to an excerpt of the famous song Old Man River from Showboat, followed by Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot. And I think people will sort of hear some similar aspects of these two works, which, you know, one comes from opera, one comes from musical theatre. But I think, as you say, Charlize, there's quite a bit in common in terms of the musical language. There's an old man called Mississippi. That's the old man that I wants to be. What does he care if the world's got troubles? What does he care if the land ain't free? I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. For full playlist information for tonight's show, please visit voicebox-media.org. You can also download the podcast version of this programme and indeed any other show from the Voicebox series on our website. We're exploring the blurred line between works conceived for the opera and musical theatre stages on tonight's show with bloggers Chad Jones, a musical theatre writer, and Charlize Thier, who covers opera. The two excerpts we just heard from Showboat and Turandot serve to show how musical theatre composers are inspired by great composers of operas. Chad, why do you think musical theatre composers are so impressed in particular by Puccini? Well, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber in particular is so impressed by Puccini that some have said he lifts oh, directly from certainly. Puccini <laughs> to fill his operas, specifically Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think any serious composer is going to have a working knowledge of opera composers that they know or love and use them as a high watermark in the art of composition, something to aspire to. Um, I don't know Sir Andrew uh, personally, but I think you know at some at some point he felt he had exceeded. Uh, Puccini and, uh, you know, he had the hubris to write a sequel to The Phantom of the Opera that um, nobody likes. So <laughs> see what that gets you. <laughs> and there's not a, a memorable melody in that mm-hmm. sequel. It's just, it's, it's dreadful. What's it, but, is that called Phantom of the Opera 2? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, uh, I don't even remember what it's called. It 
It, uh, was, it was supposed to come to Broadway and it never left. Well, London. enough said. A, if you can't remember what it's it, called, then yeah, that it, really it's means... It's set in Coney Island. Oh. And oh, it has dear. to do with the daughter of Christine uh-huh. and uh, her, the man she runs off with. And it's just, it's uh, Love Never Dies. That's what it's oh, called. That's right. And, and, but, but Love Does Die. Uh-huh. So as that musical proves. So, but Andrew Lloyd Webber isn't the only composer who's who's digs Puccini. I mean, yeah, Jonathan Larson with Rent. With yeah. Rent. And you know what's interesting is uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein ended up writing Carousel based on a Molnar play called Lilium. Mm-hmm. And Puccini was originally going to adapt the same play mm. into an opera. Mm. I wish that he had, and I wish, wouldn't that be a great example to say, and now we'll play an excerpt from Puccini's Lilium and compare it to Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel, but he never, never happened. he never wrote it. But wouldn't that be fascinating? Because Rodgers and Hammerstein, I think, um, Richard Rodgers really had serious aspirations uh, to be, I don't know that he would say this in so many ter- so many words, but uh, writing the equivalent of American operas, which is to say not operas per se, but with the same kind of, reach that same kind of feeling, but from a different direction. What do you forget? Got a light. I know you, you're, you're shivering. It's nothing, they turned off my heat. And I'm just a little weak on my feet. Would you like my candle? staring at nothing your hair in the moonlight you look familiar can you make it just haven't eaten much today at least the room stopped spinning anyway This picture I keep You my parents look out And your smiles show no scorn I am happy today For I know what to do And my heart is not torn Spirits know when to fly You're tuned into Voice Box with me, your host, Chloe Veltman. Visit voicebox-media.org for detailed playlist information and other things you might like to know about our project. I'm chatting with Chad Jones and Charlize T.A., two brilliant performing arts bloggers, about the intersection between operatic works and works for the musical theatre stage. We just listened to a couple of numbers from Rent and Miss Saigon, Light My Candle from Rent, featuring Daphne Rubin-Vega, and The Sacred Bird from Miss Saigon, sung by Leah Salonga. These musicals are both adaptations of operas by Puccini, La Boheme and Madame Butterfly. Beyond adaptations, there's also quite a few examples of works that have been directly transplanted from musical theatre and put on the opera stage and vice versa. Um, Charlize, tell us about the current popularity of works that were originally written for the musical theatre stage, like Showboat, that are now popping up in opera houses all over the place. Why do you think this is happening? I would say it's happening to bring people into the opera house. I think, as Chad mentioned before, opera can be intimidating. So having musicals in one's own language and uh, being able to understand the text immediately is helpful. And it brings in a different audience, maybe a younger one. 
which is something people in opera are very, very concerned about. <laughs> okay. Well, I thought it would be interesting, actually, to hear what Anthony Freud, the general director of the Chicago Lyric Opera, has to say about the company's rationale for staging Showboat. Let's listen to a, a short talk he did about this. For me, it's very important that great opera companies produce a breadth of repertory that encompasses not only the great international masterpieces, but also great works of our own country. One of the greatest works of music theatre that the United States has produced is Jerome Kern's Showboat. It was created in the late 1920s and it truly transformed the landscape of music theatre. It reinvented um, the language of music theatre and made it serious, made it profound, made it emotionally intense, made it not only tremendously tuneful, but also tremendously moving. And it seems to me that it is a piece that benefits greatly from the resources and the forces of an opera company. Uh, it was written, obviously, at a time uh, when there was no uh, amplification in theatres. It was written at a time when productions were not dominated by electronic tricks. And what could be more important for the work of a great opera company uh, like Lyric than to present to our audiences from time to time a masterpiece like Showboat? And I think we will all be uh, astonished at the impact that this piece will make um, when performed by the wonderful uh, orchestra of lyric opera uh, and chorus of lyric opera, with a fantastic cast made up of both opera singers and singers from the world uh, of musical theatre. The production, which is brand new, created for us here by Francesca Zambello, will be uh, very romantic, uh, very spectacular uh, and very touching. The sets and costumes will be very beautiful, very much of their era. Uh, and I have a feeling that it will become uh, one of the most memorable experiences that our lyric audiences will enjoy for many years. Charlize, you saw this production, right? Yes, so I did. So what do you think about what Anthony Freud um, says, says about it? Do you think that it, what he's saying makes sense? I think it makes complete sense. It was an incredibly charming production, and the singing was great, and the playing was great, and it was really eye-opening to hear it. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited that it's coming here next summer. That's right, the same production. Yes. Um, it's interesting to hear him talk uh, about about doing an opera where it, it was part of the history where there was no amplification yet. The singers weren't mic'd. Usually in musical theatre these days, singers are mic'd. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's very much a historical work. Do you, could you see a company like uh, the Lyric Opera of Chicago coming forward in time and, and working with, with musical theatre works where, you know, you do have amplification and maybe electronic effects that, that uh, don't necessarily lend themselves to traditional opera settings? Well, I would say that a lot of contemporary opera does use such um, amplification and electronic um, mechanisms. So I don't think that's really their issue with a contemporary musical. I think it would have to do with that there's just so many different works to choose from, Mm -hmm. and the standard repertory is comparatively small for how many operas there are that would make more sense for them to do something a bit older Mm -hmm. and perhaps not alienate their normal opera going public 
and also bring in new people. Okay, so it's unlikely that we're going to see an opera production of the Book of Mormon anytime soon. I would think that that would be very difficult to do and very expensive more than anything else. And it probably wouldn't make people doing Broadway musicals too happy to have the opera come in and try to elbow them out. (laughs) Well, so we're also seeing the reverse phenomenon of what we've just been talking about, of productions of operas on Broadway stages. Here's an example, uh, Non Sonne in Vena, an aria from the 2002 staging of La Boheme by Baz Luhrmann. Uh, The artists are Alfie Bo and Wei Huang. No sono in Vena from Puccini's La Boheme. We just heard Alfie Bo and Wei Huang performing the aria as part of a Broadway production directed in 2002 by Baz Luhrmann. What do you consider the best strategies for casting works that exist in this liminal space that we're discussing tonight between operas and musicals? I mean, uh, for example, Anthony Freud, in that clip we heard earlier about the Chicago lyric opera Showboat, talked about how they cast both musical theatre and opera singers. Do you think this is a good strategy for these kinds of works or do you think there's a better way to to cast these kinds of works that we've been talking about, which exist in between in this nebulous space between opera and class and uh, and musical theatre? I would say you don't really have much of a choice that Mm -hmm. you have to get people who can sing those roles. And they're going to be a mix of um, opera singers and people who normally sing musical theatre. I think it's hard to cast. Interesting challenge for the sound designer of that production if the opera singers are, are really performing alongside musical theater performers who are used to being miked and the opera singers are used to not being miked, um, chances are you're going to have to amplify pretty much everybody anyway, and the uh, opera singers are going to have to bring it down in some way without compromising their performance. And I think I know of some musical theater performers who could easily bend the other way and maybe get by an opera, but they need to be miked. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's an interesting blend of worlds, like just the, the physical challenge, the techno- technical challenge of balancing the kinds of voices on one stage. Sorte, 
This is Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman. Don't forget you can catch Voicebox as a free podcast on iTunes and please connect with us on our social media. Chad Jones and Charlize T.A., musical and opera bloggers, respectively, are here with me for a chat about the blurred lines between musical theatre and works for the operatic stage. We just heard the classical baritone Thomas Hampson performing Jerome Kern's The Song Is You from Music in the Air, and then listened to Barbara Streisand's rendition of Lascia Chiopianja from Handel's Ronaldo. OK, we started off tonight's show discussing Porgy and Bess, um, which is among those amazing works for the stage that can be considered as true hybrids, even if they haven't necessarily been embraced yet by the worlds of both Broadway and opera. Um, another example uh, is Leonard Bernstein's Candide from 1956. Glitter and Be Gay from Leonard Bernstein's Candide, as performed by Barbara Cook from the 1956 Broadway production. So this work, Candide, I mean, this is one that particularly occupies this liminal space. Um, is there anything you can point to specifically that makes it seem like it could be an opera or a musical? Uh, it's failure. <laughs> <laughs> ah. with, with audiences, it, um, it, is, it has always been a problematic work. Mm. And uh, Lillian Hellman um, adapted the book originally, and then a host of people, including Stephen Sondheim, over the years have tried to fix it, add to it, make it more like the Voltaire, make it less like the Voltaire, make it more like a musical, make it more like an opera. Again, because it's in that in-between space, um, no one's ever been quite sure how to fix what's Mm. wrong with it. And so they tinker with it when what's right with it is the gorgeous music mm-hmm. and is there a way to present that sure present it as a symphonic concert work mm-hmm. and then you don't have to worry about it and the audience gets to enjoy it the humor of it and the beauty of it without having to label it or make it fit into some nicely marketed package uh-huh um so while we're talking about leonard bernstein i think we should definitely touch on west side story um a work that brought together the compositional talents of bernstein with the lyrical ones of stephen sondheim who's another composer who uh whose works seem to refuse the tidy classification systems that we're talking about this evening. How has West Side Story fared in the musicals and opera world since it first appeared in 1957, Charlize and Chad? Well, it's been done as an opera um, in Vancouver, and it's being done at the symphony here in San Francisco this month. Yeah, it seems to be popular and well-liked. You know, I think when it originally appeared um, in the late 50s, audiences weren't as enthusiastic as we might um, think they were given how um, widely regarded the show is now, mm. uh, but but it was appreciated and uh, and it certainly once the movie came out in the early '60s it was widely accepted as um, a visionary, almost vanguard work of mm. musical theater, and a lot of that had to do with dance as well as the the score. But when you're combining 
um, musical styles like like Somewhere with musical comedy of Officer Krupke, you really have a, a mishmash of, of musical styles in one show, but it really seemed to work mm -hmm. in telling a story, of course, based on Shakespeare. What is going on with you, Maria? I feel pretty, oh so pretty. I feel pretty and witty and gay, and I pity any girl who's in me today. I feel charming, oh so charming, it's alarming how charming I feel, and so pretty that I hardly can believe I'm real. See the pretty girl in that mirror there, who can that attractive girl be? Such a pretty face, such a pretty dress, such a pretty smile, such a pretty me. I feel stunning and entrancing, feel like running. This is Voicebox, joining me, Chloe Veltman, in the studio for a discussion about the grey area between musicals and operas are Chad Jones and Charlize Thier. Chad blogs about musical theatre at theatredogs.net and Charlize's opera blog is to be found online at operatatler.typad.com. Well, I'd like to move on now to talking about a work that probably isn't all that familiar to audiences today, The Most Happy Fella by Frank Loesser, which dates back to 1956. One critic, Stanley Green, said that the show, which was written for Broadway, had, quote, operatic tendencies. Chad, what did Stanley Green mean by that? Well, I my interpretation of, of Most Happy Fella is that Frank Loesser, who's probably most famous for writing uh, Guys and Dolls, um, you know, the epitome of the great American musical. He wanted to write an opera, and he had great ambitions, and he was a wonderful composer, and he wanted to do something different each time out. And with Most Happy Fellow, which is set mostly in the California wine country, he saw his opportunity to write um, a, a, an Italian male character who could very easily slip into great operatic flourishes, um, but I think he pulled his punches ultimately, mm -hmm. and he wasn't completely comfortable, or maybe it was his producers, completely comfortable going all the way with the opera. Um, that impulse uh, was somewhat uh, softened by including a number of pure musical theater mm -hmm. moments. And they're not well integrated the way they are in West Side Story, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, they don't they don't fit together uh, very well. Um, so it's kind of schizophrenic. It is feel. schizophrenic. They're they're both very nice, and mm. but they don't fit together and make a cohesive show. So was it a successful musical back in its day? It was no guys and dolls. Uh -huh. I mean, I mean, measure. Uh, how many productions of Most Happy Fellow there are compared to how many productions of Guys and Dolls there are, you know, and not just at a professional level, but on a community theater level. Most Happy Fellow is not really done. There have been, I think, some opera productions, mm -hmm. and there have been uh, the most recent Broadway revival was a novelty in that it was done with two pianos oh. and a smaller cast. Huh. Yeah. So, I mean, earlier on we were talking about the reasons you might want to have to define opera versus musical theatre are sort of for reasons of accessibility and marketability. But now we're getting at this idea that, well, uh, the creators of a, of, of a work need to have some idea of whether they're going for one form or the other. I mean, would you say that's true across the board or? You know, hardly following your artistic impulses, who knows where they'll take you. But 
you know, think about the marketing after you've created the piece. And, uh, you know, I, Most Happy Fell is such an unusual show in that it really does have a split personality. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how Lesser's own, if he was fighting his own best instincts, mm -hmm. whether he really um, just capitulated somewhat and mm -hmm. didn't, didn't write his great opera mm -hmm. and then decided that for his audience... He needed to incorporate some, you know, kinds of songs like Standing on the Corner, Watching All the Girls Go By, recognizable moments and not the uh -huh. um, the more complex or musically sophisticated, um, more opera-like material in the show. Uh -huh. Yeah, sometimes these sort of mishmashes of style work really well. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking now of um, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's an example of within the space of one song where you know it's very operatic in feel that one song but it's it's rock and yet it's also opera mm -hmm. um so i mean i think there are there are ways to blend these these kinds of genres very closely together but i i, I mean i guess it's it's an elusive art it, it really is and then it, you, you the whole commercial aspect of musical theater um, enters the fray because how do you sell it, mm. you know, and and not disappoint your audience. If you're selling a piece of musical theater and they come and there's this big Italian guy singing what they would describe as opera, mm. are they going to leave happy? Are they going to leave an intermission and say, I want my money back. That guy keeps singing too many songs. I want, you know, the musical comedy. But it sounds like a recipe for confusion. If else. <laughs> yeah. It seems like a really difficult thing to do well. I think blending any two things is, is hard. Well, let's listen to a couple of excerpts from Frank Lesser's Most Happy Fella now. We'll hear Standing on the Corner, a track that has a strong musical theatre vibe. And then we'll hear Domenica, How Beautiful the Days, which displays the work's more operatic sensibility. <laughs> Matter of fact, neither do I Then standing on the corner Watching all the girls Watching all the girls Watching all the girls Go by A beautiful Here on Voicebox, we just heard two tracks from Frank Lesser's 1956 Broadway work, The Most Happy Fella. First up was Standing on the Corner, a track that has a strong musical theatre flavour. And then we heard Domenica, How Beautiful the Days, which shows off the work's more operatic sensibility. My guests tonight are arts bloggers Chad Jones and Charlize Thier. 
So, so far, we've mostly focused on American artists and works, though not exclusively. Do you think that the blurred line that we're talking about that exists between musicals and operas is a particularly American concept? Or does this phenomenon exist in other parts of the world, too? Well, let's say the confusion started here. (laughs) (laughs) Musical theater is a distinctly American Mm -hmm. art form that grew up and then headed out to other countries around the world. But um, once it took hold, I'm thinking about the 1980s, late 70s, 80s in England and the rise of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and then um, the French... Uh, creators of Les Miserables, Mm -hmm. where musical theater became uh, opera light in a way, not the sound so much, but the sweep, Mm -hmm. the seriousness, Mm -hmm. the um, scope of the story. Um, uh, I can see those works, particularly Les Mis um, primarily, um, one day being in an opera house, Mm -hmm. you know, a full operatic production. Wow. You know, um, I, I would like to see that Did, could someday. you see that happening? It hurts me. <laughs> you wouldn't like that. You wouldn't like Les Mis. You'd rather see the Opera of Book of Mormon. I would. <laughs> do you think we're going to see increasing amounts of convergence between the opera and musical theatre world, or do you see them as ultimately growing apart? Well, certainly opera companies are doing a lot of musicals, and as we get further and further away from the so-called golden age of musicals, I think that will just happen more and more naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't see it as a sort of a fad or a phase, this kind of, uh, these, this blossoming of, of, op- of musicals in opera houses? No, I would say somebody like Francesca Zambello, who's the head of Washington National Opera and of Glimmerglass, um, that she's done stuff on uh, Broadway and she's happy to present musicals to opera audiences. They've even changed the name of Glimmerglass Opera to be Glimmerglass Theater or Mm-hmm. Or something like that. So, no, I think it's, if it's a trend, maybe for the next 10 years. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, we'll see. What do you reckon, Chad? You know, I think the the art, the artistic um, uh, teams in each world, there's going to be crossover there. The directors, like Francesca Zambello has directed. She Didn't she direct Little Mermaid yes. for Disney? Mm-hmm. Um uh, that classic, and um, yes, <laughs> uh, but but Michael Mayer, who directed *Spring Awakening* and *American Idiot*, recently directed *A Rigoletto* right. um, in New York. Um, Mary Zimmerman in Chicago uh, directs opera uh, regularly, and uh, set designers, lighting designers, f- flip back and forth yeah. a lot. Costume designers, um, and I think the blending of the worlds will start there mm-hmm. on the creative side, and uh, you know I think it's going to lead to some interesting partnerships collaborations um, on, on new work and especially in reinventing older work. Well, that's about all we have time for tonight. Thank you so much, Chad and Charlize, for chatting with me about this fascinating subject. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. You can find Chad Jones's blog, Theatre Dogs, at theatredogs.net. And Charlize Thiers' Opera Tatler blog can be found online at operatatler.typepad.com. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Our series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Nayantara Jane, and our social media manager is Elio Bucky. Rachel Hamburg is our reporter, and I'm Chloe Veltman. 
This episode of Voicebox has been generously underwritten by the San Francisco Symphony, presenting West Side Story in concert June 27th through July 2nd at Davies Symphony Hall. Visit sfsymphony.org for more information. Please join the San Francisco Symphony and dozens of other organisations and individuals in supporting Voicebox. You can make a safe and easy donation by visiting voicebox-media.org or you can just mail us a cheque. We're a non-profit project, so all donations made to Voicebox are tax deductible. Find out more and send your questions and comments to voicebox-media.org. Please connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. And if you're looking for me on Twitter, my handle is at Chloe Veltman. I'd like to play us out with a moving number from Caroline or Change, a work by Janine Tesori and Tony Kushner. This is one that would work really well on the opera stage, even though it was cast originally in a musical setting. Here's Tonya Pinkins with Lot's Wife. Have a songful week. 16 feet below sea level Caught between the devil and the muddy brown sea That money, that money that money reach in and spin me about My hate rise up, rip my insides out My madness rise up in a fury so wild And I let myself go, spoke my hate to a child Penny's done that, Penny's done that Pocket change, pocket change, change me Pocket change, change me Can't afford loose change, can't afford change Change is a danger for a woman like me Trapped between the devil and the muddy brown I gotta get back to the way that I've been.